I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the January edition of the journal. I'd like to start with an article on conflict. Conflict in healthcare is well recognised but under-resourced. Forber and colleagues in this issue report the frequency and characteristics of conflict in a paediatric hospital. The methodology is complex, please see the paper. In essence, data was recorded for the same two 12-week periods in 2013 and 2014. The data informed semi-structured interviews with key healthcare professionals. 136 individual episodes of conflict were reported, with 25% reported as ongoing. The three most common causes were communication breakdown, disagreements about treatment, and unrealistic expectations. Table 2 in the paper gives a fuller list. 448 hours of healthcare professional time was taken up with these issues. Most often, staff nurses, consultants, doctors in training, and matrons. Most of the individual issues took up more than three hours of staff time. Conflict could be ranked as low, median or high in severity. Conflict was seen across all specialist areas, most commonly neurology, general paediatrics and cardiology. The data set emphasises the substantial impact on staff time and that training in conflict and support should be offered to frontline staff. The second article I'd like to highlight relates to childhood varicella vaccination. Varicella is usually a self-limiting disease, but complications are commonly described. Varicella immunisation has shown good results in some countries, but has not been universally implemented. Blumenthal and colleagues in this issue report data from Belgium by analysis of hospital admissions over a 12-month period. Inclusion criteria were acute varicella or varicella-related complications up to three weeks after the appearance of the rash. The report is of 552 children, median age 2, admitted to 101 hospitals. The highest impact was in children not to four years. 65% had one or more complications justifying the admission. Superadded bacterial infection in 49%, neurological complications in 10%, the need for surgery in 3%, the need for paediatric intensive care in 4%, mortality in 0.2%. Interestingly, only 14% of this cohort who were admitted had an underlying chronic condition. The data set is important. It demonstrates a significant disease burden, particularly in the younger and previously healthy child and is supportive of universal varicella immunisation. The accompanying editorial discusses this important issue. Should the UK introduce a universal childhood varicella vaccination programme? It's interesting to read through the editorial and reflect on the fact that the decision is by no means straightforward. The third article I'd like to highlight this month, which is Editor's Choice, relates to controversies in the diagnosis and management of growth hormone deficiency. Growth hormone deficiency is a rare cause of short stature, 
with a prevalence of 1 in 4,000. Although rare, it's an important diagnosis to make correctly as therapy with growth hormone is highly efficacious and so a misdiagnosis will result in a poor outcome. And equally, a false positive diagnosis will lead to many years of daily subcutaneous injections, significant wasted expenditure and unnecessary exposure to potential adverse effects. In a comprehensive review in this issue, Murray and colleagues discuss the significant controversies in the diagnosis and management. Growth hormone stimulation tests play a key role in diagnosis, but measured levels can vary significantly with the stimulation test and assay used. Different aspects of treatment are covered, including starting dose, which is controversial, monitoring, which is controversial, and when to stop treatment, which is controversial. At the end of growth, a number of young people retest normal, and it's not clear whether this reflects transient deficiency or a false positive diagnosis. This review is extensive and helpful and emphasises the importance of a careful and correct diagnosis and early measurements so that if the growth hormone deficient child responds poorly to treatment with growth hormone therapy, then the treatment can be reconsidered. There are useful sections of the article on when to consider growth hormone deficiency, how to investigate and practical summary recommendations on the diagnosis and management. The fourth article I'd like to highlight this month relates to the morbidity and mortality meeting. So morbidity and mortality meetings are a part of our normal routine daily practice in the work setting. They are regarded as the cornerstone of the governance process. The format however varies widely and there is no agreed set model. James Fraser, in a leading article, gives his perspective proposing that the investigation of medical error, adverse events and child death each require a distinctive approach. The contentious issue of voidability is addressed with an analysis of how proactive risk management should occur within a framework of clinical governance that achieves completion of a safety feedback cycle. The complexities of the root cause analysis process are covered. Actions to complete safety feedback, the need to be smart, that specific, measurable, achievable, realistic and timely. The importance of being proactive rather than reactive is emphasised with the need for a culture of openness rather than overzealous accountability. The morbidity and mortality meeting is an essential part of the modern NHS and should be a positive process embedded within a clinical governance process. The outcome should impact on patient care and if required clinicians must not shy away from embracing change in the interest of their patients. The final article I'd like to cover relates to the new meningococcal vaccination program being launched. Meningococcal disease is the leading infectious cause of death in early childhood and its control has been a public health priority for decades. The immunisation programme has been a great success. Ladani and colleagues report on recent developments. The introduction of an infant vaccine programme against meningococcal capsular group B and the introduction of an adolescent programme against groups A, C, W and Y. 
Immunisation against meningococcal capsular group C was introduced in 1999 following a single clone outbreak and has sustained population protection against meningococcal C for the last 15 years, probably through herd immunity. These new vaccine programmes are exciting developments and in 2015 the UK became the first country in the world to have a comprehensive routine meningococcal vaccine programme targeting all of the main capsular groups of Neisseria meningitides. The epidemiology, vaccinology, practicalities and futurist prospects are discussed in the paper. This is essential reading for all of us who see patients who are unwell and in whom the possibility of meningococcal infection needs to be considered. My name is Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please refer to the journal website for the full papers. Thank you for listening.